0: Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that you're here this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you as we continue to worship and celebrate together. Some of you are covenant members. Some of you are regular attenders. Some of you are first or second time guests and just want to welcome you. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here at Scotts Hill. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been in a new series that we have been calling Witness Living Life on Mission. Now, if you have been at Scotts Hill for at least a year or more, do you know that every year we set aside the month of November for missions? It's not just a no-shave November month, okay? How many many of you are participating in a no-shave November? Okay, how many of you? Yeah, yeah, a couple of ladies raised their hand. That's okay. Wow. All right. (laughs) Okay. Um, But uh, it's more than that. What we do at Scotts Hill in the month of November is we're focusing on missions because one of our core values at Scotts Hill is that we live on mission. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I brought out the difference between the thought of being mission-minded and being missional in your life. Mission-minded says we think about missions. Missional says we do missions. And we don't want to be a church that just is mission-minded. Well, we talk about missions, we pray for missionaries, and and, and we we support mission um, strategic partnerships. Those are important, but we want to do more than that. We want to be missional. We want to be on mission, and we want to live the mission that Jesus has called us to. And so this whole month, we're looking at one key verse, which is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends into glory, and he gives them instruction before they do anything. And he tells them in this passage what they're to be about. Now, this passage is very instrumental in this entire series because it sets the foundation for us to understand what the essentials of missional living are. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Two weeks ago, we laid out the foundation for this whole series. And Jesus brings out five specific essentials for living on mission. I just want to review very quickly with you. Here's what Jesus reminds us of. He reminds us of our priority in that passage. We're to be about the kingdom, not our kingdom, but his kingdom. He reminds us of our power. We have the Holy Spirit who lives within us and we're able to accomplish the mission that he calls us to. He reminds us of our purpose. He says, you are my witnesses. You're not my judges. You're not my prosecutors. You're not my defense attorneys. You're my witnesses who will speak the truth about what I've done in your life and I'm doing for you. And then he gives us a plan. He says, here's a great plan. You're gonna start in Jerusalem. That's your home. You're gonna to move to Judea. That's your community. And then you'll go to Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's everywhere you go. So Jesus gives us the plan. It starts at home. It starts in my community. Then it goes everywhere I am. And the last thing he reminds us of, it is personal. You will be my witnesses. Missional living isn't something the church does, okay? Missional living is something every member of the church does, And every single one of us is called to a mission, and that is to honor Christ in all that we do. Now, that was the foundation we looked at two weeks ago. Last week, Josh Hansen, who is our family pastor, took us on the very first part of that plan, that we're to live on mission in our homes. We begin in our homes. We start where Jesus tells us to begin, in our homes. And Josh pointed three things out to us last week about living in our homes. First, it's a conscious decision. Every one of us must be intentional to live on mission. It begins in our home with husbands and wives and children and grandchildren. All of those things, we make a conscious uh, decision. Secondly, it is Christ-driven. The centerpiece of all that we do is for the glory of Christ. And then thirdly, it's a commitment daily. Every single day, we must make a commitment to live on mission in our home. Now, that's what we looked at last week. Today, we're going to look at the second part of that plan, and that is this. I am to live on mission in my community. I am to make an impact not only in my home, but I'm going to make an impact in my community. Now, a lot of people today within the life of the church are saying, it's so harder to do today than ever before. It is true that for the last 30 years, our culture has been in a drift away from Biblical worldviews. In fact, there are more people in our culture today who do not hold to a biblical worldview than those who do. There are more people in our culture today who do not believe the Bible than those who do. And because we're living in this cultural drift, statistics also tell us about people's involvement in church on a regular basis. I came across these statistics this week. Check this out. 48% of Americans... Consider themselves to be religious and spiritual now when I say religious that means they Belong to a denomination or a local church and they participate weekly So 48% of Americans say they're religious and they're spiritual. They're living by spiritual principles however 27% of Americans consider themselves spiritual but not religious In other words, they like to think of themselves as being spiritually-minded people, but they're never involved in a church. They're never involved in any kind of denomination or worship services. They live apart, disconnected from the local body of Christ. And then there are 18% of Americans who consider themselves neither religious or spiritual. Now, as you look at these stats, you say, well, at least almost the majority of Americans are religious and spiritual, but not true. Of the 48% of these that say they're religious and spiritual, only 20% of them attend a church at any given time. Only 20%. So you know what that means? 80% of our culture today is not in church, and only 20% of our culture today gathers in a weekly gathering with a worship family, a faith family, 80%. And so we're so far from a biblical worldview that many people are saying, well, how do we respond to culture then? How does the church respond to a culture that has drifted so far from biblical truth? That has always been a question in the church. And if you look historically, you will see that there have been five approaches to how we are to be involved with our community or our culture. In his book, Richard Niebuhr, is a great little book called Christ and Culture. He says there are five ways that the church historically has responded to culture. Let me give those to you. Number one, the first view is Christ against culture. We reject the culture. We pull away from the culture. We go and form a monastery, and we have nothing to do with the culture around us. We run from it. We reject it. No questions asked. Secondly... Christ of culture. Christ of culture says, oh, we just embrace the culture. Whatever the culture has, we embrace it. We live it. We receive it. And we follow it wherever it takes us. The third view is this. Christ above culture. You recognize that there is a spiritual world and there's a secular world. And the two never meet. I can be spiritual. That's my private life. But I can be secular. That's my public life. And the two need not meet. Hence, where most politicians are. And then there's Christ and culture and paradox. That means this is the view that we take everything in the culture, we accommodate it into the life of the church, and we use it to help grow the church, even though there's a conflict. But then the last one is this, Christ transforming culture. It's where we become the salt and the light When we go into the culture, we're in the mix of people every day of our lives. And what we're doing is we're seeking to use the transformative powers of the gospel to tell people about Jesus. That's where the church is to be. We're not called to pull away from the culture and never have any contact with it. We're not called to embrace the culture and receive it openly. We're not called to accommodate the culture. We're called to transform it. And when Jesus says we are witnesses, as witnesses, we are called to be change agents of our culture. We are to do what Jesus did. And when you look at the life of Jesus through the Gospels, He transformed culture. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25 is what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the first gospel, gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew, or the pew, the one in the seats in front of you. Some things, you know, take a long time to die. So take that Bible out. It is yours. You're not stealing it. We're giving it to you. You can leave, as Jeff said, a $10,000 donation. We'll be glad to receive that as well. But you take that Bible. That's yours. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, then just look at the screen or in the listening guides. And in this passage, we find how Jesus transformed culture. And from this, we find four ways that he did it and four ways that encourage us today of how you and I are to impact the culture around us. Here's what Matthew records. Now, Jesus has just come out of the wilderness. He's just been through the temptation of uh, Satan, has overcome those, and now he's beginning his ministry. And here's what Matthew says. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee into Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan." Jesus is doing exactly what he told his disciples to do. Now, you might be saying, no, wait a minute. It says he went throughout Galilee. Aren't we supposed to start in Judea? Well, Judea is the community for Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't from Jerusalem. Jesus was from Nazareth. And so his community is Galilee. In fact, this is what the Holy Land looks like. If you look at the Holy Land in Jesus' day, it's broken up into different sections. You've got Jerusalem. You've got Bethlehem where Jesus was born. But up here in Galilee is where Jesus lived. And you look at all of his early ministries. Where did he begin? He began in his own community. He went to Cana. He went to a wedding feast. His very first miracle was turning water into wine. What does that teach you? Make sure Jesus is at your wedding. So, you know, the the other thing is he, he healed someone in Cana Later in his ministry, he raised a young person from the dead in name. Uh, he, he based his operations of ministry up there in Capernaum, and all the miracles you see in the early days in his teaching and everything was in his own community. So where did Jesus begin? He began in his own community. So the question that we have to ask is, how do I live on mission in my community? And from this passage, There are four specific principles that Jesus applied to his life, and I think that by relation to that, we apply it to our lives. So how do we live on mission? Let me give you four principles. It's very practical. This message is just a very practical, simple, straightforward message on how to transform your community. Number one, here's the first one. I am to engage with people in my community through relationships. How do I impact? Where do I begin? I began by engaging with people in my community through relationships. That's what Jesus did. Notice how Matthew begins. He says, and he went throughout all Galilee. Jesus had to do one thing before he started his ministry. You know what he had to do? He had to leave home. He had to leave his comfort zone. He had to leave his place Of rest and ease. He had to leave the carpentry shop where he was so accustomed to all of his days being raised and brought up. Jesus left all the safety nets of his home. He went into a a community that was hostile, that was stale, that was dying. And you know what he did? He built relationships. Jesus is the most relational person you will see in all the gospels. And he built relationships with people of all kinds of levels of society. He befriended a group of men called his disciples, and they were uneducated fishermen. He encountered people like Nicodemus, who was a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious leaders of the day. He met people who were wealthy, people who were poor. He met people who were sinners and tax gatherers. He even went to the home of the most notorious tax gatherer in Jericho, Zacchaeus. And what did he do? He built relationships. Everywhere he went, he built relationships. And Jesus never underestimated the importance of relational capital with people. And all through his ministry, he's engaged in the lives of people, real people with real issues and real problems. In fact, he told his disciples the same. He said, go out into the highways and the hedges. You go, guys, get out, be with people. He sent them on mission, and we see in Matthew chapter 10, he sends his disciples out so they can be with people. And then he tells us in the Great Commission, go, therefore, and make disciples. Get out of your comfort zones. Get where the people are. Jesus was always where the people were. And one man put it this way, you cannot spell God and you cannot spell gospel without first spelling Go, and we're called to go. I'm going to tell you the first step for you and me to be able to transform our community is have relationships with people. It's to step out of our comfort zones. It's to build relationships with people who may be like me, who may not be like me. How do you do it? Let me just give you some real simple ways to build relationships with people. How about number one? Get to know your neighbors. We live in a culture today where people don't know their neighbors. They drive into their gated communities. They pull up into their garage. The door's open. It shuts behind them. to get out, and they go in their home. They sit in their backyard with their privacy fence, and they never meet who lives next door to them. This past year, a man told me, Hurricane Florence came by, blew my fence down, and I met my neighbors. Sometimes it takes that. And we're called to meet our neighbors. We got a little lady who lives across the street from us. Her name is Miss Laverne. She's 89 years old. And we've gotten, Chris and I have gotten to know her. The other day, she, she came knocking on our door. She said, Can you please help me? I've locked myself out of the house. And I said, Miss Laverne, how did you do that? I don't know. I went out the front door, I pulled it, and it locked. She said, can you help me? And I said, sure. So I went across the street, and I went and looked all in the windows and everything, there was a big dog laying on the couch, and I was thinking, man, how am I going to break in this without that that dog there? So I pulled on everything. It was locked. I walked back across the street. I said, "Miss Laverne, did you come out the front door? Yeah, I just pulled it, too, and the bottom part was locked. I said, I got it. Walked over there, pulled out my little trusty credit card, and I broke in her house. I thought, I still got it. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to come visiting you, okay? All right? And she said, she was scared. She said, I can't believe the preacher broke in my house so easily. I said, don't worry about it. I said, you had the deadbolt typically. It's not that easy. But it's just getting out to be and meet your neighbor. It's just in those opportunities where you get to meet people. Here's another way. Go to a restaurant. Go to the same restaurant. Meet the wait staff and get to know them. One of the things I always do is say, I'm about to pray over my food. Can I pray for you? Nobody turns down prayer. And what you do is you end up building a relationship with people and you get to know them. How about this? How about, how about if, if some of you have small kids and they're in sports? How about helping coach their basketball team, their baseball team, their football teams, their soccer team? You might not know a whole lot about the sports, but that's okay. Get out there and be in the community and learn People, I remember when Leslie was playing T-ball, I said, I'm going to coach. Jim Dunn and I coached, and we got out there, and you know, there was a little girl on the team. Her last name was Scaff. Her dad's name was Mark. He was the head baseball coach of UNCW, and he'd sit his chair out every week and watch us coach these little girls. We didn't know much about T-ball. Hey, just hit it that way and run that way. You know, That's all you need to do, but here's the deal. You get in a community, you get to know people. What about this? Some of our strategic partnerships, Vigilant Hope. Jeremy Hardy's here today sitting in the back. He's with Vigilant Hope. We have been doing partnership with Vigilant Hope, which is a homeless ministry downtown for many years now. They've got a van outside, and we want you at the end of this service to go check out their van. We want you to check out the opportunities that we have to serve people and get to know them in our downtown Wilmington area. And we want you to buy some coffee. They also produce coffee. We use their coffee here at Scotts Hill, Vigilant Hope Coffee. It's great coffee. Go buy some coffee. You'll enjoy it, and it'll encourage them. But find out ways. It's so easy, but you've got to build relationships. Listen, one of the most important things with relationships is the relational capital that you earn when you get to know people. It's the first thing is to get to know people. Engage in your community. But here's the second thing Jesus does, and it's so easy. I am to enlighten people in my community with truth. Jesus builds the relationship, and what's the next thing he does? He speaks truth into people. This is what it says. And teaching in their synagogues. The Greek word for teaching is the word that gives us the English word that tells us it's about pouring in information, sharing information with other people. And what did Jesus do? He shared biblical truth with people. Jesus didn't just build relationships with people so they would like him. Jesus built relationships with people so he can speak to them about biblical truth. And Jesus took every single opportunity every day to speak truth into people's lives. He'd listen to them. He'd hear the cries of their heart. He would know the hurt in their hearts. And Jesus would be able to speak into that because he was sensitive to listen. Of course, he knew the hearts of men and women, unlike you and I do not. But Jesus spoke in very formal ways. The scripture says, and Jesus taught in the temple. But the most common way that Jesus taught was everyday life, as he was just dealing life with people. He's on the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew chapter 5, and in verse 2 it says, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. You want to know the most common response of the people when Jesus taught? They were amazed. They were amazed. Because he spoke truth to their hearts where they were. How did he know that? Because he knew them. And he got to know his community. Here's the thing. You and I, in the same way, can have opportunities to look for ways to speak truth into people. This is what I call God-truths. I'm not talking about Jesus jukes when you drop things to try to embarrass people. I'm talking about a God truth. And a God truth is when you're talking with somebody and you're hearing their hearts and you're listening to them and it gives you an opportunity to speak spiritual truth into their lives. What we need to understand is that we're living in a culture where people avoid of spiritual truth. And if you listen to a person long enough, you will hear the cries of their hearts and you can know how to speak. Here's where I would encourage you to begin. This is what I recommend us beginning to learn how to speak truth to people in our culture. First of all, make a commitment to wake up every morning and ask the Holy Spirit to make you sensitive to the conversations that you will be involved in that day. Every one of us have countless conversations and most of us pay no attention to them. But when we ask the Holy Spirit to make us sensitive to that, every conversation becomes an opportunity to speak truth. And when I'm listening to the Holy Spirit and I hear a person say something I can speak truth to that and encourage them. Here's the second thing I would do. Find out ways where you can weave scripture into your conversations. I'm not talking about scripture in a way that condemns people, but encourages people. You know, a person says, what a beautiful day it is. Oh, it's so beautiful. You know, the word of God says that the heavens declare the glory of God. What you're seeing is God's glory all around you today. Isn't that wonderful? And you go on your way. And you know when you speak truth to people, it's being salt. And you know one thing that salt does? It makes people thirsty. And they want to hear more. And there's an opportunity to constantly seek to enlighten people we know with truth. And I would say this, you can practice on one another at home. This is a great thing. This week, here's what I encourage you to do. As you're with your spouse or with your children or, or, or with your roommates, whatever you are, every time people talking, listen to them and try to figure out ways that you can intertwine truth into the conversations. I was reading about this older man who had a general, dollar general store or something like that. He had a general store. And uh, he was known by all of his customers and the people that every time people spoke to him, he came back with the biblical truth. And they were amazed. A little girl came in his store one day and she said, can I have that candy? He said, oh, yes. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And he'd give her the candy. Lady came in to buy some spices. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And he'd give her some salt. This one very wealthy lady who recently moved into the community, not many people knew, She walked in, and she declared, hey, I want you to know I'm new here. I'm very wealthy. I own a $250,000 racehorse, and I'm here to buy the finest blanket you have for that racehorse. He went to the back, and he found the only blanket he had. He came out there. He said, here it is. She said, how much is that? He said, $25. She said, oh, no, no, no. I want something finer than that. No, $25 won't do. You go back and find something better. He took the same blanket in the back. He folded it opposite, brought it back to her. She said, how much is that one? He said, $50. Oh, no, no, no. That's not good enough. This is a fine racehorse. I need the finest blanket you have. He went back. He rode the blanket up in a bedroll, brought it back up, and she said, how much is that one? He said, 150 She said, I'll take it. She bought it, walked out. All of the employees are looking at him say, thinking, what Bible verse are you going to use for this? He looked at him. He said, she was a stranger, and I took her in. <laughs> so, one of the things to do is just finding ways to listen to people. Listen, I guarantee you, if you listen to people, they'll tell you their heart. If you listen to people, they'll tell you their hearts. If you listen to people, you have opportunities to speak truth. That's what Jesus did. Here's the third thing he did that we ought to do. I am to evangelize people in my community with the gospel. I'm to evangelize them. Now not only did Jesus build relationships with people engaging them, not only did He bring enlightenment and truth to them, but he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. What did he do? He brought the good news of the gospel to them. He evangelized them. The word gospel is Uan Gileon. That's the word for evangelization. We are gospeling people when we tell them about Jesus. Listen, it's not enough for you and me just to build relationships with people. It's not enough for you and me just to tell people that God loves them. They've got to hear the whole picture. And the whole picture of the gospel is good news. But you know what the backdrop for the good news is? It's bad news. It's bad news. And we live in a culture today where nobody wants to talk bad news Nobody wants to say anything that people might take the wrong way, but the gospel is incomplete if you only talk about the good side of it and you don't speak about the reason we need it. Jesus was very clear with the gospel. He made it very clear that we are separated from a holy God and that we need the redeeming work of the Son of God. And all through the pages of Scripture, we find this to be true. And he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He tells his own disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The good news is that Jesus came to live a perfect, sinless life, to die as a sinless sacrifice for you and me. The good news is he rose from the dead and it validated everything he ever said. The good news is he's alive today. But here's the bad news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are separated from a holy God. You are at enmity, enemies of the creator of the universe. The soul that sins will die. And there is an eternal separation between those who die in their sin and those who are forgiven of their sin. We're living in a culture today where nobody wants to speak the bad news, but unless you understand the bad news, the good news never makes sense, does it? I was thinking about Noah this past week. Can you imagine the big ark that he built? The floods came. You know what Noah didn't have on the back of that boat when it was floating? Noah didn't have a bumper sticker that said, Smile, God loves you. Did he? Jonah went into Nineveh. And as he's in Nineveh and preaching, you know what he wasn't singing? He wasn't singing, Don't worry, be happy. When Peter was preaching to the crowd in Jerusalem, he didn't say to them, Now you just be you. No, they all preach the same thing, repentance. Here's the bad news. Here's the good news. And this is what struck me this week. If 80% of our culture doesn't go to church, if 80% of our culture never hears somebody proclaiming the gospel from a platform, the only time those 80% will even understand what the gospel is, is if you tell them if you tell them because they're not coming here they're not listening to Christian radio they're not reading Christian books they are waiting for somebody to build a relationship with them to speak into their lives and tell them the truth of the greatest love of the universe that's you That's me. When Ryan was about five years old, it was on a Friday, I'll never forget this. I'm in the kitchen and I'm looking out in the backyard, and Ryan and his friend Lee, who lived down the street, were in the backyard. They had gathered some two by fours together, and they took one two by four and they laid it on the ground in a horizontal, and they took the other two by four and laid it on top of it in the vertical, making a cross. And then I'm watching, I'm thinking, what are they doing? And then Lee lays down on the cross and stretches arms out. And Ryan's got a plastic nail in his left hand from his toy workbench and a plastic hammer in his right hand. And he's standing over Lee and he's talking and he scoots down on one knee and he's doing this. I open the door and say, Ryan, what are you doing? Dad, I'm telling Lee about how Jesus died on the cross for him. He said, now I'm going to show him. I said, Ryan, don't do that. Stop. But here's a little five, six-year-old kid saying, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. Now, I wouldn't recommend that tactic. But if a five-year-old can do it, and you and I build relationships with people, they need it. We're the only ones. Do you, you ever stop to think why you have the friends you have? You might think it's a curse. God in his providence has put you together. And a relationship that doesn't move to the point of telling people about Jesus when you know the truth is the worst kind of relationship there can be. It's like you building relationships with people who have cancer and you know the cure, but you never tell them. We're to tell people. Here's the last thing, and I've got to hurry. I'm to encourage people in my community through acts of kindness. Kindness. All right, here's where the rubber hits the road, as we like to say. I'm to encourage people in my community through acts of kindness. What did Jesus do? Notice what Matthew tells us. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He goes on and he says, and he healed them. Go through the Gospels and you know what you find repeatedly? He healed them. He healed them. He cured them. He raised them from the dead. He he delivered them from demons. You know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew who they were. He knew what they needed. But in the midst of their greatest needs, He knew what their needs were. And He ministered to them where they were. He encouraged them. He didn't just say from heaven, I love you. He took on human flesh. He left the carpenter shop. And He touched them, the lepers. He hugged them, the outcast. He ate with them, the tax gatherers. He healed them. And these were people who did not hold the same religious convictions as he did. These were people who were totally different than he was because he alone was perfect and holy. And yet it didn't matter their station in life or where they lived. He healed Syrophoenician women and their daughters who were demon-possessed. He helped a woman at the well who was a Samaritan. He helped a centurion who was a Roman. And he helped Jewish leaders. He encouraged them by meeting their needs. He did that everywhere. Listen, if we're going to be like Jesus, we can't just talk about loving people. We need to love people. Yesterday, I was so blessed when so many of our folks gathered together in the Family Life Center and we went out to do ministry in our community. I love to see parents and little kids as we work together building these little packets of goodies for homeless people in our community. You know what I loved about that? These little kids writing notes to homeless people that they will never meet, saying, Jesus loves you, and I'm praying for you. And they put it in a bag, and all of these packets put together, and these kids praying over these bags that God would use this in a homeless person's life. It's incredible. It's incredible. To watch people go to our first responders and prepare packets for them, thanking them for their service in our community. Watching people go into homes that were devastated by Florence that still are not put back together, and yet we're going over there and loving on them and painting their walls and helping them with their buildings. Individuals who go down every week to Vigilant Hope and serve those who are homeless, outcasts those who go every week to the prisons and minister to those who are incarcerated. I'm I'm thinking of one man and his wife who gave a mobile home to a single mom whose husband died of a heart attack and she lost her home in Hurricane Florence. And they paid to have it transported and to set up and he with other men in this church built decks and stairs to bring healing. Many of our folks going to Kinston in a Baptist children's home to those kids who live with dysfunctional families to see a picture of what a godly family is all about and to love them and say, we care for you. You see, we can talk about loving people, or we can love them and we can go. I read a statement this week and I'm almost done. I read a statement this week. Actually, it was last week. That so convicted me, it more convicted me. I'm going to tell you what it did. It wrecked me. You ever read a statement that really just shakes you and wrecks you, and you think, wow, I wish I had not read that? I did. Leo Tolstoy, a philosopher and godly writer, wrote these words. The antagonism between life and conscience may be removed either by a change of life or by a change of conscience. The antagonism that exists within us between my life and my consciousness can only be resolved if I either change my life or change my conscience. And what do most people do when they come to an issue where they have to change their life or their conscience? Most of us, if we're honest, we change our conscience. Because if I could change my conscience, I'm not responsible for that kind of behavior that is to follow the conscience. And yet the problem with humanity is we have an unlimited power to rationalize everything in our lives and change our conscience. If I know that there are people who are hungry and are dying and going to hell, and I have the means to change that situation, and I don't, I've changed my conscience over my life. But if I know that there are people who are starving and dying and going to hell, and I have the means to do something about it, I need to change my life and to meet the needs of those people. I'm thinking of our political arena today, which is very, very volatile. And we hear a lot of politicians these days talking about the social injustice around us. And they love to talk about the social injustice and everything we need to do to help rid the world of social injustice. But they never give a penny. They never give any time. They personally do nothing to change it. All it's become is a political talking point for them. And I'm sick of it. I want to tell you the same is true in the church. We can talk about loving people. We can talk about leading people. We can talk about all these things, and yet if we do nothing personally or with our investment and in our time, these things become spiritual talking points for self-righteousness. That's why it's wrecked my world. What am I going to do? Am I going to change my conscience? How am I going to change my life? What did Jesus do? Have you ever thought about the last day that Jesus would have been in the carpentry shop? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is waiting his adult life. He's 33, 30 years old, getting ready to start his ministry. The Holy Spirit impresses on his heart that it's time to go. We don't know what that day was like. But can you imagine what Jesus was? He's standing in the carpentry shop. Everything around him is safe and comfortable. His home. It's where he learned to walk. It's where he learned to speak his first words. It's where Joseph taught him how to build a chair and a table. Maybe a lazy boy, I don't know. But it's where he grew up. What was the last day like in the carpentry shop for him? I wonder, did he pick up a nail and rub it between his fingers, anticipating the pain of it penetrating his hands and his feet? Did he balance a hammer in his hand? And wonder, how would this reverberate in my body as it drives in nine-inch spikes? I wonder if he ran his hand over a rough piece of wood and thought, I wonder how deeply those splinters are going to penetrate my raw back. I wonder if he thought, you know what? Life's good in Nazareth. I could just stay and be a carpenter. I'm the only one in town. Besides, I could come back at another time when things are not so hostile, where religion is not so stale and dead. But if there were any questions in his humanity, it was overcome by his divinity for his compassion. He saw the faces. He saw the tear-streaked cheeks of people who were crying out in anguish. He saw the demon possession of individuals in that culture. He saw the injustice and the mistreatment of individuals. He saw in that carpentry shop the faces probably that he walked past every single day. And he knew he he was their only hope. And he heard their cries. He heard them crying out to God. He heard them crying in anguish. He heard the brokenness of their hearts. And I believe in that carpentry shop. Jesus knew about you and he knew about me. See, there's never been a time when he has not known us. Never. And he saw your tear stained pillows at night, he saw the heaviness of your heart and the brokenness of your soul. He heard your questions. He heard the agony of your heart, the broken relationships and your loneliness and your lostness. And he left. He left the carpentry shop for you. He left it for me. He took the hammer of his security and he hung it up. He took the nail apron of tranquility and he put it on the peg. He shut the windows of the sunshine of his youth. And he walked out and barred the door of comfort and anonymity for you and me. It wasn't easy. Leaving the carpentry shop never is Your child of God today. He did this for you. If you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to hear very clearly today, He did this for you. He left for sinners like me and you. He walked the dusty roads of a broken world that would eventually demonstrate hostility to Him and hang Him on a cross. But He wouldn't stay there. He rose from the dead validating every single claim he had ever made about being the son of God and proving once for all he is who he said he is. And there's never been a time he has not known you. There's never been a time he has not seen you. There's never been a time he has not been unaware of your heart. And today he's saying to you, I am your answer. i love for you. Will you yield to me? Some of you here this morning, the Holy Spirit's been dealing with your heart about surrendering your life to Christ, and today Jesus is solidifying that in you and saying, surrender. No one loves you like I do. No one knows you like I do. I'm the only one who can bring you to where the Father desires you to be in a relationship with Him and in eternity. You can know that today. And believers, he hasn't left us to stay in the comfort zones of our lives. We are to go. Love people. Listen to their hearts. And speak truth. See the darkness that they're living in. And bring the light of the gospel. And bring healing ministering to them any way that you can, that this doesn't become a spiritual talking point of our lives. It becomes a transformational point of our community. I want to lead us in prayer. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you're not a believer, But God has been dealing with you. And you're willing to surrender to Christ. I want you to pray this prayer to yourself. Not out loud, just pray it to yourself. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that Jesus is your son. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he died on a cross for my sins and he rose from the dead on the third day. And right now I surrender my life to you. I give you my past. I give you my present. I give you my future. I ask you to come and live in me and be my Lord and Savior. Help me to follow you all my days. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for forgiving me of my sins. For every believer, God is calling us to go. Will you go? Will you engage? Will you bring enlightenment? Will you evangelize? Will you encourage? Father, I pray for your body here at Scotts Hill that we would be like Jesus and we would do these things. May we submit ourselves to you fully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.